to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their filmic adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. All right, all right, all right. We are continuing our international road show. We have left Canada, <laughs> Brenna. We have traveled literally all the way around to the other side of the world. And we're stopping in New Zealand to talk about Margaret Mayhew's The Changeover. It is a witchy ghost story, and I survived. We don't even have a co-host to talk about the scary parts today, so it's pretty big for me. Yeah, I applaud you because (laughs) I thought the book was actually pretty even in terms of like having some interesting stuff but not being particularly scary, but then when I watched the movie, I felt a little bit bad. (laughs) Felt bad for you. I got a text from Joe. It was like, uh-oh, this is actually really creepy. You're going to hate it. Because <laughs> I found the film really surprisingly effective. So I was like, ooh, I don't know that Brenna's going to do well with parts of this. <laughs> and it's fair. In fact, I took Joe's warning and I watched it at work while I was doing like little end of term tasks, but in the bright fluorescent lights with lots of coworkers around. So I, I muted some of its creepy effects to protect myself. <laughs> fair enough. The best advice that I can give people about watching scary movies is to watch them during the day and to turn the sound down or even off because a lot of the time things are not quite as scary if you don't have that score. Creates a lot of atmosphere. Yeah, this is true. And I I was watching it with headphones on, obviously, because like I was at work and that that made some of the parts quite scary because they were right in my head. But before we talk about all of that, Joe, we should talk about the news. Absolutely. <laughs> and I have some news that I stole from friend of the show, Hannah McGregor. Mm-hmm. This is news from late March. So we're a little bit behind, but I think it came out just after we had recorded our episode on Love, Simon. Yes. And the news is that Fox 2000 is closing. So Disney has purchased Fox and in the reorganization of things, they're closing the, I don't know, what do you call it? Production company? Yes. Unit? Fox 2000. And the reason why that is of interest to our listeners is because some of their most recent films include Love, Simon and The Hate You Give. Mm Mm-hmm. And Mm -hmm. this also harkens back to the conversation that we had earlier this year where we talked about how Realist YA is being blamed for a decrease in YA sales. We talked about how some of the film adaptations might have lent some kind of contributing hand to that perception because they don't gross as much. So things like The Hate You Give and Love, Simon, they were decent size like I would say medium size hits in terms of film gross but they're nowhere in terms of comparison to something like Divergent or The Hunger Games or Harry Potter so I think it'd be easy for someone to look at this news and say oh well we're not really losing much because these are just you know middling YA films. The other one that I should have listed is The Fault in Our Stars was also a Fox 2000 title. So in that case, take back everything I just said, because that (laughs) film was a monster success. (laughs) Why got to make me look bad, Brenna? Well, but that's the thing that I was going through the list. And I would say that I think you could almost call Fox 2000, well, I guess Fox Searchlight as well. But Fox 2000 is kind of like the Oscar bait wing of the Fox production behemoth, right? Because we're talking about films like, in addition to the YA ones that we've just mentioned, we are talking about films like Hidden Figures and Joy. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm looking at a Hollywood Reporter 
article and they label these mid-budget prestige pictures. Yeah, those are like a bad combination of words when you're <laughs> looking at bean counting and thinking about where you can cut costs. Yeah, because apparently the Disney closing searchlight will save them. They figure $2 billion by 2021. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, Disney's just not in the habit of making those kinds of films, right? They make superhero films now. They make Star Wars films. They make these hugely big-budgeted tentpole features. So for them to be able to save that kind of money that they can then put back into franchises is... I'm sure to them, a sound investment, but then we as a society lose a lot of culturally minded, important, smaller stories. Well, that's what this same Hollywood Reporter article is saying, is that these are pictures that have traditionally appealed to, I like the way they phrase, diverse and woman audiences. Oh, <laughs> I love them diverse and women audiences. Some of my best friends are diverse and women audiences. <laughs> Some of your favorite co-hosts are diverse and women. So it's, yeah, it's interesting that Disney's clearly, they they have to make some, some reorganization. I guess there's no point in buying something if you're just going to let it keep running the way it was. But I don't know. For me, it seems like an odd target considering, yes, these films in question are not budget breakers. No. What's it when a movie makes a lot of money? Blockbusters. There we go. But none of the ones listed in this article have like lost crazy amounts of money either. You know, like... Mm-hmm. Is anybody walking around going, man, that Hidden Figures was a mistake <laughs> to have made? Man, I wish we didn't make The Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> that didn't go well for us. Yes. So it's, it's odd. I don't know. It's, it's a shame. I guess my question to you, Joe, is because I don't know anything about the back end of how movies happen. Like, are we down one place for these kinds of films to get made? Or is it like water will find its level? These films will still find somewhere else. Another production company will gobble up this kind of content. I mean, I would hope for the latter, but the honest answer is probably the former, which is that increasingly what we're seeing is that there are micro-budget, kind of very low-budget, and by low, I mean probably under $10 million films. Mm -hmm. And those are often horror films that can be wildly profitable. So things like Blumhouse with their Jordan Peele films, they're very tiny productions that can make a ton of money so that even if you only make $30 million, if your budget was five, hey, you've made a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And then we've got the polar opposite, which is these mega budgeted blockbusters, you know, like Star Wars, like any superhero film that are costing 200 plus million dollars, but then they end up grossing a billion dollars. And there's often nothing in between. So something like Hidden Figures, which probably costs, you know, maybe 20, maybe 30 million dollars, but then grosses 120 and earns a bunch of Oscars or awards buzz and that kind of stuff, those films get lost. But I think what we're going to end up seeing, and we've probably already begun seeing it, is those kinds of stories are now going to television. Well, this is what I was just going to say is, I wonder about the confluence of stories that we're hearing. Because my first thought is, okay, all of these mid-budget prestige picture type stories these would all work on netflix like they don't need you to see them in a on a huge screen Mm -hmm. they don't need to be in sort of a collective environment to be their most effective movie going experience but then we're also hearing this stuff from the academy around cracking down on allowing netflix pictures to be nominated for major awards Mm -hmm. so it seems like the stuff that gets awards the big studios don't want to make it anymore, but they also don't want Netflix to get awards for making it. Yes. Is that 
basically what I'm hearing. Uh, I mean, part of the problem is, is that a lot of the old studio system mentality is based on principles that are at this point somewhere between 150 years old. And mm-hmm. the realistic idea is that streaming is here to stay. And whether or not people want to let Netflix movies into cons or if they want to let them be Oscar nominated... Mm. It's the old guard trying to keep the new guard out, but also, you know, there's a lot of arguments to be made about how maybe something like Love, Simon wouldn't have worked at Netflix because they would have said, "Mm, we want you to do something different. Like, there's pros and cons to both. Mm -hmm. I do think it's also interesting that this story comes on the heels of, so Disney has shuttered Fox 2000, but they literally announced as of today, the day that we're recording, that they are going to be developing a Love, Simon TV show for their new streaming service, Disney+, Plus, which is coming in the fall. So part of their decisions are economic, but they're also looking at, okay, we own these properties. How can we also continue to make money on them in different formats? If Disney is listening, can you, for the love of God, cast a fat Leah, please? I literally just put that on both Twitter and Facebook. (laughs) Oh, did you really? Yeah. Like, because I want to hear, I want Leah on Offbeat Story. We already have all these stories happening in this universe. Give us a cast that can deliver them, please. And that's a callback to our Love, Simon episode, which folks, if you haven't listened to, you should. I'm a delight in it. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) It helps that I sometimes give Brenna books she enjoys reading, and then we get like a really happy episode out of it. It's true. Okay, Joe, do you have any news you want to add before we jump into the changeover? I mean, I do, but mine seems really facetious now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I just had a tie-in. So one of the actors in film adaptation of the changeover, he's actually about to break out. I'm putting that in air quotation marks because he's starring in a upcoming Netflix series called Chambers. Okay, so the person in question that I'm talking about is the boy in the film version of The Changeover, and the actor's name is Nicholas Galitzine. And I think Netflix is maybe going to try to groom him into the next Noah Centineo, Israel oh. Broussard kind of deal. But Chambers is not going to be your kind of show. Oh. It's about a young heart attack survivor becomes consumed by the mystery surrounding the heart that saved her life. However, the closer she gets to uncovering the truth about her donor's sudden death, the more she starts taking on the characteristics of the deceased, some of which are troublingly sinister. Oh, no thank you. Yeah, probably not really for you. (laughs) This is another one of those odd ones where it's got half a cast of young adults and half an adult cast, like Uma Thurman is in this and Tony Goldwyn is in this. Oh. I've seen couple of episodes i think i'm embargoed and not allowed to say anything just yet but i will say that this is a series that's debuting on april 26 so it's uh i think shortly after this episode oh okay look at you being timely with your news i try my best (laughs) shall we jump in and talk about the changeover absolutely so breno what is the changeover about because this is a bit obscure and it's i think the oldest text that we've covered so far well that's not entirely true because no because we did a scarlet letter is definitely the oldest text we've done joe okay (laughs) brenna but yes of the contemporary stuff this is the oldest you're so proud of yourself right now and i I am so proud of myself (laughs) 
I'm so proud of myself because when I started the sentence, I couldn't remember the name of the book I was thinking of, but I found it by the time I ended the sentence. Fair and that's enough. a win for me. Okay. So the changeover is a, it's dubbed a supernatural romance by Margaret. I'm going to go with Mayhe. That's what I think too. Okay. Published in 1984, originally published in the UK, though it is a, set in New Zealand. Specifically, mm-hmm. it's set in a suburb of Christchurch, Christchurch, sorry, called Gardendale. And my understanding is that Gardendale is a fairly new suburb, and it's based on a real suburb called Bishopdale. So if you are from Christchurch, let us know if Bishopdale is a real place that you've visited. The idea behind the changeover is it's almost like a ghost story meets a fairy tale. The premise is that Laura Chant, who is our protagonist, she's a teenage girl. Uh, She's a pretty typical teenage girl. She's living in a poor family. Her father has left and started a, a new family with a new wife who's pregnant and doesn't often pay the support that the family needs. They're living, you know, they have a car that doesn't always start and there's not a lot of extra money for things, but they have what they need. So Laura's mom, Kate, is working in a bookshop and Laura takes on a lot of the tasks around the raising of her little brother, Jacko. Mm-hmm. Who's adorable. Um, he is adorable in both versions. I like Jacko a lot. Uh, I think he's about three in the book. They age him yes. up a little bit for the film. Yeah. Every Thursday evening, Laura is sort of in charge of Jacko because Kate, her mom, has to work late. And so on one of these evenings, they're uh, poking about the shops in town and they come across an antique shop that is opened up in a storefront that was abandoned previously. And when they go in, they meet a very creepy storekeeper and Jacko has been in a little bit of a mood because when he left his babysitter's house, he only got a stamp on one hand. He didn't get a stamp on both hands like he wanted. And so this creepy man offers to put a stamp on his hand. Mm-hmm. And the stamp that he puts on... It's a seems, picture of his own face. It's a picture of his own face. It's like very it. creepy. It doesn't wash off. And then the next morning, it's gone, seeming to have melted into Jacko's body. And Jacko gets sick. Yeah. He seems to be possessed, perhaps. He's having seizures and he slips into a coma. Mm-hmm. So luckily, there's a neighborhood witch family <laughs> that everybody just kind of knows is a neighborhood witch family and everybody's fine with. Well, I think they're, they're known as an odd family, but only Laura really seems to understand like, oh yeah, no, he's a witch. He's a full-blown witch. <laughs> That's true. Laura is very open to her mom, Kate. She feels like she has premonitions and her mom listens to her in that she doesn't like tell her, shut up and don't talk about your premonitions, but she doesn't really understand the ferocity with which Laura feels these things. And Laura has had a premonition of something bad happening to Jacko that she has tried to express to her mom. Yeah. She goes to seek the help of Sorensen Carlyle, who's a boy in her class who she's certain is a witch. And Sorensen, or Sori as he's called, lives with his mother and his grandmother. And they offer the suggestion of a changeover. If Laura, who is already sort of sensitive to the supernatural, changes over and becomes a witch, then she in turn will be able to possess the possessor and rescue her brother from his spell mm-hmm. and that is just about what happens but what's interesting is that laura 
is very much the actor in her own story. She has to navigate her changeover. She has to push through her own sort of personal reservations and her inner demons in order to access this part of herself that can be a witch. And she is the one who has to go and save her brother. Sori is there with her. He provides advice and guidance. But for the most part, this is this is sisters are doing it for themselves in this book, which I really appreciated. Mm-hmm. And there is a happy ending. In the end, the witch, the bad witch... I guess the oh he's a larva right he's like a demon larva they've decided that's what's happening with him uh, anyway they describe him as a lemur but it's kind of like a parasite he mentions at one point that he can go after anybody who has a certain amount of vitality because that's what sustains or hope him. for the future yes. so he likes children he likes new mums retirees retirees yeah so he goes after people who are sort of at this this moment of change and opportunity mm-hmm. and optimism yes. um, and as a result of feeding one body to another he's a thousand years old yes and he has the delightful name of carmody brat Carmody Brack, who has a store called Brick a Brack. Mm -hmm. Um, Which he thinks is far too witty. (laughs) Yeah, he's really proud of himself. So Laura is able to pull her brother back from the brink. But just as importantly, I think she, with the help of Sori's guidance, makes the decision not to torture Carmody Brack, but instead to uh, just let him go. Just Mm. helps him admit that he is dead and gone and over and to stop tormenting the earth. And in the end, we know that Sori and Laura have feelings for each other, but they make the sensible decision to pursue their own paths for a few years because it would be an age-inappropriate romance and they have a lot of growing up to do, which was like the most heartwarming end to any love story we've had all the time we've been doing this podcast. And that's that. That Jacko is is fine. They have a happy life. Their family, oh, a character I haven't mentioned is um, Chris Hawley, who is Kate's boyfriend. He sort of arrives on the scene just before Jacko becomes ill, and he ends up being like a really stand-up guy through the whole thing. I spent the whole book waiting for the other shoe to drop there. I assumed he was going to turn out to be a bad guy, but he's not. He's totally lovely and Canadian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so what did you make of this book? Did you like it? Did you... I did like it. I did like it. I thought it was... Remember when we talked about the mortal instruments? Mm -hmm. No. Engines. Uh, Which one was British? Engines, right? The one where the cities eat each other? Or the ones where they all have really bad accents? No. (laughs) The ones where the cities eat each other. Mortal engines. Mortal engines. Okay, so when we talked about the mortal engines, I was talking about how that book reminded me of the kind of classic adventure stories my grandparents used to buy me, like very English adventure stories. So this book reminded me of the kinds of sort of books for teen girls that they used to buy me, where there was like a little bit of paranormal and a little bit of romance and a little bit of spooky or a little bit of adventure, but mostly it was about young women learning how to come to their own defense and learn how Mm -hmm. to navigate the world. So for me, it was a really nostalgic read. This is the amount of spooky I need in my life. (laughs) This much. (laughs) I don't need more than this. (laughs) Um, So I liked how atmospheric the book was. I liked the really positive and interesting relationship between Laura and Kate Laura finds fault with her mother's mothering and she doesn't love that her mom has this new boyfriend, but there's also a respect and trust between them that I found really 
honest, that sort of give and take between mother and daughter, I found really lovely. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of things that I liked about this book. It's not the kind of book I would pick up off the shelf for myself, but it was a really interesting and enjoyable read. And I think Mayhe's doing some really unique things with this kind of fairy tale, supernatural sort of one-two punch. Yes. Yeah. What did you think? So this is interesting. So this obviously is a bit more in my own wheelhouse, but this one, I could feel the age gap a little bit more fully than some of the other books that we've read. So, you know, we just talked about Ella Enchanted a couple of weeks ago, and that one had a kind of quaint old fashionedness to it. This one... I felt a little bit more removed from and I was trying to figure out if it was the way that Mayhe is using language that just feels a touch more outdated. I mean, there's some obvious things in there like they don't have a phone. They don't have a phone. And part of that is you're like, that's really difficult to relate to even poor families or families who are struggling financially rather they would still have a phone. Like they wouldn't have Mm -hmm. to go to the neighbors or they wouldn't have to go down the street to make a phone call. So that kind of stuff, obviously, you can say, okay, this was a different time. But just the way that some of the events unfold, I imagine, and I'm positioning myself as this person, but I'm imagining that there would be people who would read this and struggle with some of, I don't want to say unconvincing, but they're just, they're very unusually presented so the fact that Kate starts dating Chris at more or less the same time as Jacko gets sick Mm. and Kate just continues to casually date Chris (laughs) like there's whole sections of the book where you would think that Kate would be freaking out because her child is getting increasingly sicker it's in the hospital he's in a coma and Kate is kind of like okay, well, I'm going to send you, daughter, away to go and stay the night with this other group of people, the Carlisles. And, you know, yeah, I'm just going to have my new boyfriend that I've known for a hot second stay with me. And, you know, you find out that they slept together that night. And part of it is it is really interesting because that is realistic. People do Mm -hmm. act this way. But Mm -hmm. I feel like it doesn't often get captured in a book form because... It feels messier and maybe more authentic. Yeah. Like a lot of these interactions are very frank and I like it's how messy that dynamic is. It is unexpected. And I like how messy that family dynamic is. Like there's one point where Laura, Lolly, her daughter her mom calls her Lolly, says to Kate, I don't understand why you don't want me around and she's like, Yeah, I don't either. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I want this. I don't know why I want him and not you right now either, but I just do. And it's like, yeah. Sometimes like emotions are weird and hard right Mm -hmm. but those also seem like the kinds of things that nowadays an editor would be like yeah oh this is unsympathetic a mother doesn't act this way you need to file off the edges and make this a little bit more palatable i always say palatable but (laughs) i think that you're right because i mean we'll get to the film but one of the things that happens in the film is that kate is just unambiguously a crappy mom (laughs) she's just (laughs) She's just unambiguously bad at momming in the film version. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think that's exactly what happened there. It was like, this is a really messy mother-daughter relationship. The boundaries aren't clear. Yes. Like sometimes Laura is very much more the parent than Kate mm-hmm. is. Laura is definitely the one who's going to risk her life to bring Jacko back. Yeah. And yet there's also this whole weird dynamic where Kate kind of believes what 
Laura tells her, but also kind of doesn't. Like, there's so much messiness and nuance between them. Mm -hmm. And you can tell the filmmakers were like, uh, we're just going to make her a bad mom. It's a lot easier and more straightforward. And you can tell that story on film. Like, this would be really hard to capture on film. Because, yeah, there's moments where she's, like, profoundly unsympathetic. Mm -hmm. And then there's moments where you're like, the closeness between them is really beautiful. It's interesting. It's really interesting. It is not a book that would be published in 2019. No, and I kept not getting frustrated. Frustrated is too strong a word, but there were times where I kept getting a little off-put by some of the interactions. And Mm -hmm. I think it was when this book was published and what I'm expecting to see now, which I always love. It didn't make for the most pleasurable reading experience, but it forced me to confront what I expect of books and how I sometimes struggle with things that are not immediately contemporary Mm -hmm. so I appreciated that and then on the other hand I was like it's so different it felt unlike anything I've read recently Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. this book is very odd it is odd it's an (laughs) odd book I think that's a very fair and I I think some of the messiness and the frankness of their relationship actually really serves the story well yes because it's almost like if this is such a true depiction of this weird and not easy little family then also maybe the witches are real i don't i know that sounds insane but it's like there's this this off balance this off kilter nature to the way the domestic scene is depicted that made so that the witches did not seem like such an outlandish contribution to this conversation somehow okay so let's talk about the carlisles because I'm not going to lie, the stuff that I struggled a little bit more with the Chant family, aka Laura and Kate, I was so engrossed in all of the Carlisle (laughs) backstory. And I don't know if it's just because I'm like, witches, tell me more. (laughs) (laughs) So the Carlisle backstory is that Sorensen lives with his grandma, that's Winter, and his mom, whose name is escaping me. Miriam. Right. And Miriam had given birth to Sori, but had put him up for adoption. Because he wasn't a female. Because he wasn't a female, and she didn't think she knew how to raise a male who might have witch-like powers. At one point, Sorensen describes himself as like a male calico cat, like something that's not supposed to exist, right? Yeah. He's a guy, and he's a witch, and that's not supposed to happen. Mm -hmm. And so she puts him, actually not even up for adoption, she has him fostered with a family. Yeah, she pays them. Yeah. Apparently quite extravagantly. (laughs) Yeah, enough that they, even when things go south, they really don't want to give it up because they need the money. And after some years, it sounds like, of trauma, Sorensen returns to the Carlisle home when he's 16. Mm -hmm. So right at the time that we're meeting them and right at the time that Laura is becoming involved in their lives, they are also getting to know this son grandson again who they had really cast out and sent away and then when he comes back into their lives they're like oh you have these powers and actually it's not that different from raising a female witch and we actually quite like you but sorry as a result is like really hardened yes he doesn't form fondness easily and he doesn't trust relationships particularly and so Yeah, there's this dynamic there where I think at one point Miriam describes it as we don't love each other because we have to. We have chosen to be fond of each other and you can always revoke a choice. 
which is really kind of it's kind of dark <laughs> it's pretty dark <laughs> <laughs> well and even the fact that you know sorry he's essentially playing two very very different roles like he's a prefect at school and he's very much distanced and aloof but he's proper at school and then when laura actually gets to know him she discovers that that's all just a front and that he's only putting on appearances at school and she encounters this completely different boy who dresses differently who acts differently he doesn't have any kind of the social niceties or the cues to even know how to interact with her so that was actually one of the other really weird things for me reading this book because you may be happy that this story doesn't end with a forced love affair, but the romantic interest in this supernatural romance book is really sexually abrasive and almost <laughs> rapey throughout the entire book. And there's a four-year age gap between the characters in the book. It is, except that nothing happens, right? And that's one thing I didn't like about the film adaptation is that they're much more... It's a lot more traditional. Yeah, it's a lot more traditional and they push it a lot further. But like, I don't know, for some reason, this did not bother me the way the discovery of witches like, I could harm you, bothered me. Like, there's something about... And maybe it's the fact that it's through friendship with Sorensen that Laura comes into her power mm -hmm. as a witch that makes it less problematic for me and the fact that they don't have a consummation and they don't have like a happily ever after that makes it less problematic for me but it bothered me a lot less that is so and weird i don't know why because i kept reading this thinking brenna is going to have a field day with this because <laughs> there's one point where he grabs her boob like without invitation he posts a picture of her face on top of a naked woman's body in his bedroom. Like, yes. so many of their encounters, I was just like, this guy is kind of gross. I mean, he's totally gross. Don't make it, get me wrong. He's incredibly gross. He's incredibly gross. And I guess maybe I was just so relieved that he was incredibly gross and hands off. Nothing came of it. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because normally what we get in these stories is he's incredibly gross. And I love him. And I love him. <laughs> this is true. Which, to be honest, again, maybe this is one of those things where it, had this book been written nowadays, that would have been the kind of thing. I'm almost certain. I'm almost certain because there's such an assumption about what teenage girls want to buy and mm -hmm. what is going to sell. There's no way. I don't think this book would ever get published. And it's a Carnegie Medal winner. Like, yeah. It was an ALA best book for young adults. It was a school library journal best book of the year. It was a bookless editor's choice. Like, it was a big deal when it was published. Mm -hmm. And I 100% don't think it could get published today. No. I do not think it would find a house. Absolutely not. No. This is, I don't want to say a relic because it makes it seem like, oh, let's put it into a, you know, behind glass and never touch it again. But this is a book from a bygone time. And in that case, it's fascinating. There's just so many weird, quirky details, encounters, passages. Like, I'm wondering what you thought of her spirit journey section. Oh, yeah. Uh, surprising how much I actually liked that. I mean, because normally that is the kind of thing that I would skim okay. through. But I thought it was actually really effective. I think because, I mean, the closest analog to it that we've read recently is like the fear landscape in Divergent, yes. right? Yeah. And in the fear landscape, everything that Triss goes through is like, 
I don't know. It's just you can almost hear the smash cuts being written in, right? It's like bam, bam, bam. It's very kind of thuddingly plotted. Like let's yes. make sure that no one misunderstands what we're doing. <laughs> Whereas I, there were huge chunks of this, and you know, this isn't necessarily a positive. I I understand that, but there were large chunks of this journey, spirit journey thing that I had to go back and reread because. Mm-hmm. I couldn't... Like, what is happening right now? What is happening? And also, (laughs) she's getting guidance, right? She's getting guidance from Sori and from Miriam, but they can't follow her everywhere and they can't lead her everywhere. So you're not always sure. Things are coming out of her memory, but things are also being fabricated by her mind in those scenes. Yes. You're never even sure, like, is she actually going somewhere? So for people who maybe haven't read the book, and by the way, you really should read the book because it's just so interesting and unique from anything that you've probably read for this podcast alone agreed i'm not sure how easy it is to find i got a copy of the public library so it was re-released in 2007 okay for some reason it was some big anniversary of its publication so there's a you can get it for kindle and everything Ah, good okay in that case you have no excuses go out and track this book down <laughs> but this is the process this is the the titular change over that laura must undergo in order to move from what is it she's a perceptive she's sensitive i think they say sensitive thank you yeah so the reason that she knows that sorry is a witch and that the carlisles have this alternate power like their their house is protected by the spell so that people see them but can't really intrude on them and laura can sense that because she is sensitive to spell casting and witchery and so on it's also why she actually knew that Carmody Brack was not a good man. She just reacted too slowly to protect her brother from that. Mm-hmm. So to undergo the changeover means to become a witch. And it's something that she is cautioned against because it can kill you if you do it wrong. And of course, spoiler for the YA bingo, but she is a little bit of like the chosen one. Like we know that she's going to be able to come through this on the other side. Yes, definitely. But the process itself requires her to take a bath. And then she gets out and she misreads bath mat. So she reads it backwards, almost like she's dyslexic. And then she enters a kind of hallucinatory experience where she's both traveling around town, but also still in the bathroom in her own mind. I don't even know how else to describe what happens. <laughs> well, it's weird. I mean, it's a callback too, though, right? Because like, at the very beginning of the book, one of the first things that we find out Laura looks in the mirror and her face looks wrong. Remember at the very beginning of the book, mm-hmm. she looks in the mirror and she's like, she suddenly thinks she, she's older and then younger again. And her mom's like, oh, when you get to my age, that's just what looking in a mirror is like. <laughs> <laughs> but it, to me, it was a callback to that moment. It was like, a, oh, that was a premonition of yes. this. Yeah. But yeah, reality becomes untrustworthy mm-hmm. for her. And the whole point of that is that she has to journey within herself to like, unlock her capacity for witchcraft that's my understanding yeah so you can't trust reality coming of age and finding who you are and becoming you know a more confident person like i do love that on one hand you can look at this book and say it's a supernatural romance but on the other hand you could look at it and say this is just a coming of age story it's a girl who has to step up and take responsibility for her brother and at the end of the book she learns to stand up even more so for herself and her interests Mm mm-hmm And she finds herself as an adult at the end of this tale, even though Mm -hmm. technically it's only been, what, six months over the course Mm -hmm. of the book? 
I was telling Joe off the top that I read a scholarly article that was published ages ago, like 1990, in a journal called Children's Literature and Education. And this article posits that the changeover is a modern adaptation of Sleeping Beauty, where the heroine wakes herself, where she's not waiting for a Prince Charming to wake her up to sort of adulthood, which is, of course, what Sleeping Beauty is all about, but that she wakes herself. And there is actually a line in the text. He jokes that he's her Prince Charming, right? He jokes that like when he kisses her, when she comes out of that spirit journey dream thing, he jokes that he's her Prince Charming. And she says, I woke myself. (laughs) It was one of my favorite lines in the book. And then I found this article that was using it as the title. And I can really see that. I can see this idea of like, very much this is a book where there are some helpful men and helpful adults who offer guidance and offer some shepherding. But at the core, this is a story about a young woman achieving her adulthood on her own. Mm-hmm. And that is part of what makes it incredibly refreshing, honestly, because there's no point where she faints and wakes up and Sorensen has fought the demon for her. There's no point where she gets to like hide behind the stronger, older witch to do the dirty work for her. She mm-hmm. has to do every step of this herself. Yeah. In fact, and it I seems like that. other characters are kind of actively getting in yeah. her way a lot of the time. You're like, mom, stop. Get out of the yeah. way. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Seriously, it's true. Like, stop sending her to her dad's house. Nobody cares about the dad. Like, let's, yeah, let's move on here. That dad. <laughs> Um, do you want to switch over to talk about the film? Because I kind of want to talk about them in conversation with each other. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so here's the trailer for the film adaptation of The Changeover, which is quite recent. It's from 2017. I know what you are. Well, I see Jacko's still with us, despite your warnings. Jacko! I've been looking for you everywhere. But I thought I'd better keep him here in, in case he wandered off to the motorway. He might like a special stamp. He knows he's not allowed to talk to strangers. Sorry! I like the stamp. You know what? We're gonna make him take it off. Go away! This kind of power has to be invited. He wants to possess him. I can smell your fear. You're what we call a sensitive. A sensitive can become a witch. That's what a changeover is. Mom! You guys gotta help me change over. They burn witches, don't they? Where were you? Jackal! You gave me power over you. I'm going to find you! So The Changeover is actually co-directed by a pair, Miranda Harcourt and Stuart McKenzie. And McKenzie also wrote the adaptation. 
And Ooh. it stars a number of fairly well-known New Zealand actors like Melanie Linsky, who is fantastic in one of New Zealand's most famous movies, Heavenly Creatures by Peter Jackson. It's got Lucy Lawless as Miriam. As I mentioned off the top, it's got this hot guy, Nicholas Galantine, as Sorensen. And then the main character is played by Arena James, and she is a relative newcomer. This is her big debut. I thought she was fantastic, by the way. I thought she was great as well. And the final person of note is the villain, Carmody Brock, played by Timothy Spall, who's very much doing a bit of a take on his character from Harry Potter. He plays Wormtongue <gasps> in the Harry Potter series. Ah, I spent, well, as much as I ever care, mm-hmm. I spent quite a bit of time trying to figure out who he was and where I had seen him. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So what did you think of the adaptation? I feel like I liked it a lot more than you did. I think you liked it a lot more than I did. I did not dislike it by any stretch of the imagination, but it's just another case of, for me, everything that made the book special or interesting kind of got lost in the translation. So like I watch one scary movie a year mm-hmm. on Halloween to placate my spouse. <laughs> okay. And if he had selected this, I would have been like, that was a fine choice. Right. <laughs> you know, like this is not for me. Like I am not the target audience here, but I enjoyed it. I thought it was really effectively made. I thought the atmosphere was really well done. Mm -hmm. But for me, the thing that kept me gripped in the book was this weird family dynamic and this young woman discovering her own power. And because the weird family dynamic is flattened, Mm -hmm. I was less interested in the story of her coming into her own power. Right. And the other complicating factor for me is that I uh, have a toddler boy and i did not like watching the toddler hospital scenes Mm -hmm. they were not fun i did not enjoy that (laughs) could have done without it (laughs) yeah apparently could watch a thousand sick teenagers but not interested in watching sick toddlers that's the the power of the medium right it's Mm -hmm. one thing to read it and be able to say nope this is a character this is some someone else but then when you have to watch it and you see you know, a little sick child, It's it gets you in a different kind of way. It was a lot for me, yeah. Yeah. So I think one of the reasons that I liked the film, and I would suggest that they're actually very similar and yet also very separate texts. Agreed. One of the things that I liked about the film all the way up until the ending, and as a reminder, we are spoiling things, so I am going to talk <laughs> about the very ending. I thought that the film was doing some really interesting ideas around uncertainty. So Mm. I like the way that it was like, okay, she's got to go through this process to become a witch so that she can battle this villain. And to a certain extent, it almost has like those fear landscapes where her process of going through to become a witch is actually also her process to defeat Kermity Brack. It happens at Mm -hmm. the exact same time. And she goes into like his liminal space where he's got the souls of all of the children that he's trapped and killed and eaten. And then, you know, he's decked out in swanky clothes and he's got some really expensive looking house. And that's more or less your dramatic conclusion. But then she goes to the hospital and her brother has died. And that moment... I imagine it was very difficult for you as a mother. For me, Mm -hmm. as someone who was watching this as a thriller, like a supernatural thriller, I thought it was fascinating because all of a sudden, I wondered whether or not they were challenging the notion of whether any of the supernatural stuff had actually happened. 
Mm-hmm. And the suggestion was that this is actually the story about a teenage girl who is effectively made to be a parent mm-hmm. because she has a bad mother who mm-hmm. leaves her alone to assume... Who's basically driven mad by grief. Yeah. She can't yeah. handle the fact that the child that she was responsible for, quote unquote, you know, made to be responsible for by a bad real parent, she can't handle it. And she has this idea that, you know what, if I could become a witch, if I could get these things, if I could make up this villain to solve and save the day, I can rescue my brother and she doesn't make it. Like her brother still dies. And I thought, oh my gosh, that is so interesting and powerful and... You know, it really changes the entire way that the story is shaped. And then she uses her witch powers and she brings him back to life and everything is happy. And then she can go and have sex with her boyfriend. And I was so disappointed. (laughs) Yeah. I found the ending really disappointing too. As you know, I am a willing suspender of disbelief. It's not hard for me to be like, yeah, sure, that happens in the movie. (laughs) But the idea that two teenagers wander unmolested into the morgue Mm -hmm. of the hospital just grabbing the body (laughs) it's not even like they have the guise of like i just need to say goodbye to my brother and a doctor or a nurse walks them in they're completely on their own they just open the body bag Mm -hmm. and then she like brings him back somehow and carries him out and she's like oh mom he was just hiding which also how dumb is this mom (laughs) that that worked sorry how checked out is this mom that that worked yes It's one hurdle too many to assume. I think, again, this is how do we get our sensational and also emotionally compelling ending. I guess part of me was really hoping that the film had the gumption and like the ballsiness to say, Mm -hmm. this is actually a tragedy and this child is dead. Yeah. I don't think it would have been financially successful. I just had this conversation on my other podcast about how films with unhappy endings, particularly where children die... Not not really crowd pleasers. <laughs> you don't say. I don't, no. But <laughs> there is something to be said for being willing to tell the truth. And that sometimes these stories don't have happy endings. And people don't have powers. And the mm-hmm. child doesn't survive. Mm-hmm. I just felt like that would have been so much more interesting. Because the difference in the book, I mean, there are myriad differences between the two. But one of the important differences as far as the ending is concerned is that Jacko never dies in the book. In the book, he's very, very ill. Mm -hmm. But the possession of Carmody Brack and the destruction of him is this miraculous turning point in Jacko's recovery. And by the time Laura gets to the hospital, he has already started on this uptick. So you don't have a big anti-possession scene like you get in the film and you don't have the death. Yeah, I think if they were going to go down the route that they did with the film, you are right. That would have been a much more effective, interesting, risky, ballsy, so to speak, Mm -hmm. ending. What they ended up doing was, yeah, they tried to go for something with more emotional punch than the book offers and ended up giving us less. Yeah, because they they settled for convention. They settled for convention, right? So not only, as you said, not only does she have this I cast thee out demon scene in the morgue, not only does she save her brother, but yeah, as you pointed out, she then goes and has sex with the boyfriend. Which is admittedly a little more appropriate in the movie. Yeah, they're much closer in I think they're actually meant to be nearly the same age. What's interesting about the book is if this was a book from Sorensen's perspective, we would have a character who is 
wrestling with the very notion of like affection, (laughs) care, love, even being able to conceptualize that alongside the fact that he is a teenage boy with hormones, Mm -hmm. alongside of the fact that he is actually quite in awe of this young woman who he has come into contact with. And the whole book for Sorensen is this tension, right? That yeah, sometimes he's absolutely disgusting and awful. Mm -hmm. But part of his character arc and his growth is to know that like, he could totally have Laura if he wanted to, right? But he doesn't pursue that. Instead, his character arc in the book is to say, you know what? I'm going to go. I'm going to learn how to be a a wildlife guy. I'm going to go and get some trees. I like birds. I'm going to go watch squirrels for four years. That gives you time to finish school and figure out what you want to do in your life independently. He's still very much like, and then we'll get married. Like he's very much like, we'll be together. But there's this independence of spirit that he allows her in the book that is completely in keeping with the journey that she's been on. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the film, because it ends with a typical love scene, Mm -hmm. they become a typical YA romance. I mean, we also have the scene, right, where they're making out in the kitchen. And so because they're making out in the kitchen, they don't notice that Carmody Brack has gotten into the house and has taken the poppet, which in the film version is like sort of what his connection is to Jacko. So there are all these moments where they play the romance up so conventionally mm-hmm. that we lose what interesting nuance there is in Sorensen. I actually think he's the biggest casualty of the film version. Oh, Him and the mom are the two biggest casualties of the film version because we don't get any sense that either one of them is wrestling with anything. She's just a bad mom and he's just a horny 18-year-old. Right. <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he doesn't have a backstory in the film. Mm-mm. So that was really interesting. I watched the film before I read the book. Mm. I think that was actually another reason why I really gravitated to his backstory in the book was because it was Mm -hmm. all fresh. Yeah. I did think that there were hints of the unusual nature of the relationship in the Carlisle family. Obviously not to the same degree. No, but they're definitely meant to be sort of unconventional Mm -hmm. but functional in a way that Laura's family in the film is unconventional and not functional. I'm of two minds because I do feel like on a certain hand, you're 100% right that we're setting this up for a romantic relationship and it's all about developing the chemistry between the two leads. But I do think that there's still that element of awe. Like he is continually surprised by Laura still in the film. I agree with you. Yeah, I do agree with you. It still feels like it's something where she herself has to go through it, although it does feel like he's a bit more hands-on in terms of like guiding her. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's not that he loses the awe component in the film version. It's just that it's not tempered by all those other factors in the film version just because we get less of him. Mm-hmm. And from the perspective of a film that has to stand alone and has to do a lot of work in an hour and a half, it makes sense because sure. by getting rid of his backstory and his complications and getting rid of Kate's complications and her life, basically, yeah, she doesn't no have a life. In this at all. There's no boyfriend. The husband is dead. The husband is dead. Mm-hmm. Apparently... And this is another reason why they could have pushed it further, right? Because we're never told explicitly, but Kate alludes to the fact that Laura is acting just like her father, right? right? And there's a suggestion that her father has killed himself. And so they set us up to be ready for that twist. Yeah, like she she has like a destructive bent to her in that way. To me, it's like the way they've chosen to go with the ending is that old adage about film, right? Where you show a gun, but then you don't like 
have it go off. That's sort Check of... Off gun. Yeah, that's how I felt about the way they chose to play the ending of the film version. Yeah. I just think they got real safe. A little bit, yeah. Like, there's so many things where they're swinging for the fences, and then it feels like at the end of the day, they came down and said, oh, well, we can't have a bad, dark, grim... Like, we need that closure. We need that happiness at the end. But that's not in keeping with the rest of this movie. No. This film wades in a lot of despair and desperation. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, to a certain extent, I do think that the romance was elevated to cut through some of that because the rest of it is just so unrelenting. Like, Laura is alone on the journey in the film but not in an empowering like find your own way it's like no no one is going to help her except for maybe miriam and winter yeah you're gonna be in a bonfire on fire yeah figure it out (laughs) so we talked about this a bit off air but one of the things that i like that really helps to set the stage is that this film is explicitly set in christchurch after the 2011 earthquake and in case people are not aware of what happened Christchurch is I think the biggest city on the south island of New Zealand so there's two islands Mm -hmm. and Christchurch is like the really well-known city on the south island and on February 22nd of 2011 a 6.2 magnitude earthquake caused 2,000 casualties and 185 fatalities. It's like one of the biggest natural disasters that has ever happened in New Zealand. So this is like the equivalent of a massive cultural event, like a tragedy Mm -hmm. happening within a nation. So one of the benefits that the film has is because it's a recent film, they can actually incorporate that in as part of the storytelling in the way that the city has itself not repaired. So it is still recovering from this incident and it is still kind of raw it's damaged it's not a place of peace and serenity and safety so the actual physical location is informing and setting you up for this narrative that has grief and desperation and terrible things Mm -hmm. happening in it and the other interesting thing is that Carmody Brack doesn't have a storefront like you would see on a, a main street in 1983. Yep. <laughs> he lives out of a shipping container, which I thought was really fascinating because it has all of these connotations to it. Like there's immigration, there's, you know, obviously retail, like these crates are used to ship goods and transport them between different types of countries and cities and so on. But I love this idea that he's a transitory, like migratory, predatory creature. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that came out really well, both the location as well as that particular plot point in informing the film, especially early on. I definitely agree with you. And there's even a point where Laura says to her mother, like, I warned you about the earthquake, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so there's this sense that Laura's premonitions have have actually had major consequences before, which underscores the extent to which Kate is really bad at being a mom, (laughs) right? Because she's like, (laughs) Yeah, which again, I think it set me up as a viewer to say, okay, so is this a situation where our lead character is unreliable and she's having Mm -hmm. some kind of, you know, she's about to go off on a path that maybe we shouldn't trust is actually real. Mm -hmm. Like, is this all a trauma response kind of thing? Exactly. 
you know we see that kate is obviously a bad mother like there isn't any kind of supportive understanding relationship between mother and daughter in this there's really just you are responsible for jacko i need you to do this stop being a bad daughter well and even just like you don't get to have friends you don't get to have a boyfriend you don't get to go to a party Mm -hmm. in the book version i feel like kate was actually more of a figure who would be encouraging those relationships just not on Thursday night, exactly. right? Like, I need yeah. you Thursday night, but I really want you to go and have your friends. She's like, a word her daughter's a little bit too serious in the book version, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas in the film version, it's like, Cinderella, sweep the floor, Cinderella, right? Like it's Very much so. Which is really challenging for me because Kate is played by Melanie Linsky, who is honestly the most delightful woman. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's playing against type here. Very much so, yes. Very challenging. <laughs> The other intertext that I want to bring up is Alice in Wonderland. Oh, yeah. Through the looking glass. (laughs) Yeah. I saw those stories at play both in the book and in the film. I think the film makes more use of the illusion. Yeah. Particularly in that sequence where she has to do the dive into the pool. And then I'm coming out in all sorts of unique, interesting ways. Yes, exactly. So there's this whole idea of like making it through something and coming at the other side, right? But that is also tinged with this whole unreliable narrator idea, right? Because Mm -hmm. to Alice's family, she's just very strange, right? Like we don't understand why she keeps telling us that these things are happening. They're not really happening, right? She's just deluded. Because the film was playing with that so much, that to me was another example of where it seemed to be setting up for something that didn't pay off the way it could have. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to know whether or not this is an original ending or if it was Mm. like a forced rewrite. Because honestly, it just doesn't ring true to me at all. It doesn't feel anything like the spirit of the rest of the film Mm -hmm. at all. Yeah. I guess the other interesting thing of note, when I mentioned to people that I was watching this online, I got a bunch of responses being like, I've never heard of this. Is it worth watching? And I would say unequivocally, I would definitely recommend it, if only for the way that it's shot. It's beautiful. use of color, particularly during nighttime sequences. Like there are scenes where she's just out riding the bike with Sori. And the way that it's shot, it makes it look like they're in pitch blackness, except for Mm -hmm. streetlights dotting the way. Like there's so many different opportunities for them to connote a journey. She is constantly on a path towards self-discovery towards trying to save her brother and it really comes out visually in a lot of different ways it's also just atmospherically very successful i would say the thing that is most similar between the book and the film is that evocation of i'm feeling a little bit unsettled Mm -hmm. i'm feeling a little bit creepy i'm not sure what's real and what's not it's funny because i was trying to describe it to someone today and i was like it's like it was shot through fog but it wasn't like it has this sort of a little dreamy a little dreamy but a bleak dreaminess like an untrustworthy dreaminess yeah Yeah. i i even though as i say this is not a film for me but i would recommend (laughs) it i really did think it was well done basically right up until the ending i was on board right up until jacko died and then i was like okay there better be some payoff for jacko being dead and then there wasn't and i was like okay well now i'm mad because i just saw a baby die Mm -hmm. for no reason I got nothing from it, and I'm mad. (laughs) Well, and the problem is is that, like, honestly, if you're going to kill a child in a film, you can't then just walk it back two seconds later. you can't. Because that's emotionally manipulative. Yes, it is. That's you playing games with your audience and saying, like, I gotcha. Yep. That's kind of a garbage move for filmmakers to do. So sorry. We don't like it. No. Audiences don't like it. No. (laughs) Just to be clear. Just to be clear. (laughs) 
I do think one of the reasons that the film works so well is Arena James's lead performance. She's very good. She really anchors this film. And I love the fact, I don't know how to say this without sounding like a bit of a dick, but she's unconventionally attractive. She doesn't look like any other actress. This film is gloriously and unabashedly not a Hollywood film. Yes. In much the same way that The Lesser Blessed was gloriously and unabashedly not a Hollywood film, Mm -hmm. right? Like, there's nobody you don't want to look at. But they are not, they're not cookie cutter looking people. And they're achieving a level of grit and authenticity in their performances that is genuinely super refreshing. Yes. Yeah. I was so happy to see that this film was actually still set in New Zealand and that it features Mm -hmm. a principally New Zealand cast Mm -hmm. because we both dislike the ending of this film, but I think we like the rest of it. And I can probably tell you that I don't think I would have liked nearly anything about the film had it been transplanted into like a California small town or if the main character had been like a perky white girl with blonde hair. No, I agree completely. To me, it just, it speaks to the power of having a setting and a characterization that is either regional or nationally specific. And I think that there's a power to that. Mm-hmm. I agree. Anything else that you want to say about either the book or... I kind of thought that you were actually going to talk a little bit more about Mayhe's text, like the way that she uses language, if only because I was captivated yeah, I think that's maybe what I meant when I was talking about the atmospheric nature of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I read one review of it that was saying, a review of the 2007 re-release of the book. And in that review, I guess there's an essay by Mayhe that talks about how for her, it was the first time she had attempted to depict New Zealand for her audience. Oh, interesting. She was established as a writer but not of YA, and she had not ever set a book in New Zealand. And so her sort of very careful and loving attention to that moment and that world, I think, is is really effective. Mm-hmm. The other thing that came up in the review of the book was the idea that there's a timelessness about Mayhe's prose because she resists any slang of the time period. She resists uh... any vernacular. Yes, And so I think as a result, there is sometimes a feeling that the teenagers speak. Unusually. Unusually, yeah, because they do. They speak in a pretty standard adult kind of context and vocabulary. But the flip side of that is like, you're not coming across like, oh my God, gag me with a spoon, radical dude. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, you're not immediately dating the book. (laughs) Yeah, and so you have, I think there is a timelessness, but it's a timelessness that is rooted in this sort of creepy, atmospheric, pseudo-supernatural kind of storytelling that makes it, to me, really effective. Like, I can see why this won a Carnegie medal. She's doing a lot of complex stuff, but she's still telling uh, straightforward... I don't know how to phrase it, except that it had that nostalgic feeling to me. It felt very much like other books for girls of its period, and yet I think it's doing a lot more complex things in terms of the journey, the independence, Mm -hmm. the spirit that Laura has. And that's one of the reasons why this actress is so good, because she captures a lot of that that I don't think the film inherently gives that character. Yeah, she's like, I think there's a lot in her performance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a big recommend for me. I feel like we've Mm -hmm. had a couple of weeks of good luck. (laughs) Yeah. And what's neat is that we've had a couple of weeks of 
non-traditional YA texts, like things that you wouldn't necessarily think of when you think of the genre. And they've all been really successful. Uh, And that's nice. Lord knows I love a YA romance and I'll never turn one away. But it's really important and valuable that we see what complex, interesting, nuanced, thoughtful, novel, interesting work is also possible. And if you think like this book's from 1984, The Lesser Blessed from 1997, like this is a heritage and a pedigree of YA that we forget about sometimes when we focus on the hyper new. Yeah. When we started back in the day, we briefly touched on this idea that there is a lack of memory when it comes to Mm -hmm. YA. We like to pretend that it only just came about. And it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, I think I've referred to it as an ahistorical genre. And it can be, it really, really can be. And so I'm always grateful. I'm grateful for contemporary writers who have some understanding of the richness of the history. And I'm excited for these new adaptations that are giving us the opportunity to look back at some of these seminal texts, which I mean, as far as I know, I don't know a lot about New Zealand literature in general, but my understanding is that Mayhee is a very important figure. I think so, yeah. And I noticed uh, just one last thing. The film was dedicated to her. Did you notice that at the end? I didn't, no. Yeah, it said, for Margaret. And I was like, wait, who's Margaret? And then I was like, oh! <laughs> right. It's the author. Because the dates, it had 1936 to 2012, I think, which is which is Mayhee's lifespan. Uh, yeah, it was interesting. I got the impression that they had been trying to make this film for some time and that it only just came together yeah like i had a sense that she was involved in the early stages but obviously passed away before Mm -hmm. it came to fruition which is always such a shame Mm -hmm. okay well why don't we leave off there and you can tell people how they can get a hold of you or we could do ya bingo yes (laughs) (laughs) bingo not a good bingo Okay, (laughs) so I have allusions to other YA, which I'm stretching because I do mean Sleeping Beauty and Alice Through the Looking Glass, which aren't really YA, but they're allusions. I wanted to give author cameo with an asterisk to the dedication to Margaret Mayhew at the end of the film, just because I thought it was a classy touch. Fair. And I wanted to include parents just don't understand, but differently for the film and the book. Like Very much so. (laughs) In the book, Kate wants to understand but laura almost never gives her enough information to really understand but there's also the father who doesn't but in the film of course she's just again i don't know if we've mentioned this but kate in the film is very bad at being a mom very bad a little bit yeah (laughs) i will add the hero savior complex a little bit more for the film than Mm -hmm. the book Mm -hmm. And if we wanted to go sticking with the film, we've technically got a dead parent because her father has passed. We do technically have a dead parent. And I think that we could maybe make an argument for a redemptive arc. Maybe redemptive is too strong of a word, but there's definitely sort of a journey to a sense of Mm self-fulfillment. So maybe, maybe. And whatever the opposite of rich people problems is, that's what these guys have. Uh, a little bit of poor people problems yeah mm-hmm, mm-hmm. all right okay so um joe mm-hmm. if someone were to look for you on the social medias how would they do that you can find me on both the instagram and the twitters at be still my remote that's the letter b and I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And if you want to get both of us at once and chat about the show, you can use the hashtag HKHSPod. We check it all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can also send us <laughs> something longer. 
We're still waiting for fanfic. I don't know that this one. I don't want changeover fanfiction. No, no, thank you. No. <laughs> if you have fanfiction for some of the other texts that we've covered, though, of course, you can send it to hkhspod at gmail.com. So we've been to Canada, we've been to New Zealand, and next week we are hopping over to South Korea Mm -hmm. to look at the webtoon Orange Marmalade and its television adaptation. Uh, And if you want to check Orange Marmalade out, it's a freely available webtoon. Joe and I uh, have looked at the first, I think, 25 episodes of the online webtoon. So if you want to check out, you know, some or all of that, so you have some context for our discussion next week, that'd be great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can also find episodes of the TV show. So there are 12 in total. I think, Brenna, you and I are going to watch a couple. And mm-hmm. we may invite a special guest on to try to help us suss out some of the things that we maybe don't understand as well as we mm-hmm. might need to. This is a reader request or a listener request. So That's right. This is going all the way back a couple of months, but a couple of people did ask us to try to check out some K-drams and some stuff over from the east side of the world. So this is our attempt to do so. And well, we're going to see how it goes. I'm a little <laughs> bit nervous, but... Quite nervous. If nothing else, I think we're going to have really good opportunities to get corrected or educated definitely so definitely i definitely think that this is an experience of me going okay is this a trope of the genre that i don't know or is this something new and interesting so we'll be looking for a lot of listener feedback next week i think Mm -hmm. but they're both free and really accessible all you need is an internet connection and you can read both the text as well as watch the tv show so that's orange marmalade coming up next week So then until next time, even though it's not really paper, I'm still going to say my sign off. So I'll see you on the page. (laughs) And I will see you on the screen. 